This is Life, the Universe, and Everything, an unconventional science podcast. I'm Michelle Caldwell. I'm Chris Orban. And we're here today with Rob Pyatt, Director of a Genetics Diagnostic Lab at Nationwide Children's Hospital and member of the Steam Factory. He's also involved in more science outreach programs than we had any idea existed in Columbus. <laughs> and we're excited to talk to him today about multitude of topics from genetics to comedy to outreach to everything. So we welcome you today. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. So we, we recognize that people don't just drop in already developed and formed. And <laughs> Wouldn't it be so, nice if we could, though? Yeah, that would be fabulous. <laughs> Um, so we're curious, what kind of influences did you have growing up that led you into genetics and what, um, you know, did, were you talking to people about their medical backgrounds and studying DNA? <laughs> what, <laughs> what kind of things um, led you here? So starting off as a child of the 70s, uh, I think the first thing or one of the first things that really grabbed me scientifically was Star Trek. Um, I'm a huge science fiction fan and being able to see, and, and at that point it was in syndication, every afternoon uh, a bunch of people using science and the scientific principles to figure out a mystery. And in this case, you know, it was aliens or a disease or whatever that just blew me away. Sure. Um, in, in addition to space battles and cool aliens <laughs> and adventures and spaceships, um, seeing science presented like that just really excited me. Um, the other TV show that was probably a huge influence was Cosmos, the PBS special with sure. Carl Sagan. Um, the, the images that he was able to present just of what we had at that point of investigating our solar system and our universe I mean, and being able to broadcast that to this home in my little suburb where I lived, that just, again, blew me away. Um, and, and as a kid, I would watch literally anything that had a spaceship or a planet or an alien, almost no matter how bad it was. <laughs> nice. I mean, do you think there was this the seeds there of, of the bug that you have to, to, to do science outreach as, as much as you are now? watching Carl Sagan? Um, probably. Um, I, I think my science outreach really came from, if I could present a Venn diagram, I would at this point. It would be the intersection of my love of science. I've always been involved in drama and theater. Uh, so that kind of developed my presentation. And I've always been very passionate about education, and I've been able to foster that in my career. So where all those circles intersect, that's really where my outreach interest came from. Sure. So, so how did the, the biology genetics aspect come? Because Star Trek and Cosmos, there's not a ton of biology. <laughs> right. That's true. In their shows. Um, you know, I, I can't remember exactly where it came from, but I do remember when I was in like junior high or, or maybe even like sixth grade, so upper elementary, when people would ask what I wanted to do with my life, I remember telling them I wanted to do one of two things. One, be a fighter pilot. And Sweet. unfortunately, I don't have great eyesight. I was born with one slightly deformed eye, so that kind of nixed that. But the other thing I remember telling people was I wanted to be a genetic engineer. 
as a fallback. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. That's you know, kind if of I can't random. Make it, How did you come up I, with that? I don't do know, know, but you know, yeah. I think in the 70s we were beginning to talk more and more about genetics and being able to engineer genetics and I'm sure I just heard of it somewhere and mm-hmm. thought this sounded really cool. Um but that that's sort of the first I remember really talking about it. And then throughout my career, um, you know, as a, a grad student, you get to look around at different labs, doing different projects that you would be interested in, in, in spending your time as a student, um, which is an important point in science that we get to look around and find things we're interested in. Science is very much a passion. Um, and some of the projects that I was most attracted to were genetics ones. So what kind of projects did you do when you were in college? What was your research focused on? Um, as an undergrad? Well, or... as either, as both, as undergrad and graduate student. Uh, as you'll research. find out as we talk, I've had a weird history. You um, like weird. That's we're all about weird. <laughs> it definitely fits with, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. I uh, did my undergraduate at Indiana University. Um, And I got involved in their honors molecular biology program because at that time, molecular biology was really a growing field. You know, we hadn't done PCR that long where it's a technique where we can amplify regions of DNA. Um, We hadn't really done much sequencing of any genome, never mind our own genome. So I thought that would be a great thing to get involved with, which I did. And it was a phenomenal program. But then about my junior year, I figured out that for a thesis project, I didn't want to do molecular biology. I wanted to do marine biology. So I worked really hard. (laughs) It totally makes sense, doesn't it? You're at Indiana University, (laughs) totally landlocked in the middle of the country. Let's do marine biology. Sure. So I worked very hard, got certified as a research diver with the government, um, which is like an upper level of diver certification. And then the summer after I technically graduated, I went with a research group down to the Florida Keys. Half of our group was the archaeology team. Half of our group was the biology team. And I was the biology team. So we would dive 17th and 18th century shipwrecks, what's left of them. And the archaeology team would make archaeology site maps of the site. And the biology team would map all of the life that was there. So coral, fish, crustaceans, and it was a phenomenal experience. And you got paid. Uh, Well, you know, you're an (laughs) undergrad, so that's a little questionable. But you were still in the Keys diving, doing science. There you go. Yeah, that's all you and and really, you you asked about my background. You know, we all have these pivotal decisions that we make in life. Um, I I had initially thought as an undergrad that I would go to medical school. Um, But then became sort of disillusioned with that. Um, I I wanted more kind of an intellectually stimulating career as an undergraduate Um, and then later on as well. So I ended up not going to medical school, but I I graduated. So wait, medical school didn't seem intellectually stimulating? Well, it's not really research. It's not. (laughs) Not And that's just it. Yeah, I was much more interested in that intellectual stimulation of discovery. I really liked that part of it. Um, so uh, the year after I graduated, I was kind of taking that, that year of figuring out what am I going to do with my life? So I was working as a pharmacy technician at night shift in a hospital, and I applied to graduate school in marine biology at a university in Guam, and I got accepted. 
So for a couple of months, I was preparing to go to graduate school in marine biology. And there was a lot of medical exams I had to do. I had to get screened for parasites and all of this crazy stuff. But at the same time, I'd also been applying for jobs as a laboratory technician in some labs at universities around the Indianapolis area. And I got a job offer. So then it became a question of, do I go to Guam for marine biology, or do I take this job as a research technician in a lab doing stem cell biology? So looking at uh, bone marrow cells and umbilical cord cells that are really immature and can develop into all the various cells we have in our blood system. And that just seemed like it was too good to turn down. So I took the job as a research technician. But my wife always jokes what would have happened if I went to Guam. Mm. Had you met her at that point? I had, but we hadn't started dating yet. So, uh-huh. And it was really right around that time that we started dating. <laughs> so then what happened in grad school? Where did your research take So you? I worked two years as a technician in this lab, and I credit my boss at that time for completely making me a scientist. He really taught me how to think, how to reason, how to write a scientific article, how to do a scientific presentation. He was excellent. Um, I got the job, and then after a couple months, I found out that uh, with the university we were working at, you could earn your master's part-time. And at that time, my boss had never had a student, so I just went to him and said, hey, why don't you take me on as your part-time student? And he did. So I worked for two years, got my master's part-time, and after that was done, I realized I wanted to go on to graduate school. Uh, Part of the work I'd been doing had been on um, blood cancers, so like leukemias, Um, some work on lymphomas, and I really liked the area of human disease. So I started looking for graduate programs in human pathology, so the study of disease, um, and was accepted into one here at Ohio State and came out for grad school. Wow. So here's a question. A popular book that's been out is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Yes, and I've actually worked with the cell line described in there. That's what I was curious about. So can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, You know, uh, before the book came out, none of us really knew what HeLa cells were. A lot of cell lines are given sort of arbitrary coded names um, just as a way of keeping track of them. That cell line was known as HeLa for Henrietta Lacks, but myself and many other researchers had no clue what the story was behind it. So that's a phenomenal book for shedding light on the history of that important cell line. So what do you remember what specifically you were working on with those cells? Honestly, I don't. don't. Unfortunately, I know I was working on we would grow them in the laboratory. That's why they're a cell line. They're easy to grow. Um, I know I was working on some projects looking at different ways you could disrupt the cell membrane and and uh, put dye into it that way you could track the cells as they divided it was essentially as they cell as the cells divide you would be passing on some of that dye to each of the daughter cells so in theory as it became dimmer and dimmer you could track the number of divisions that that cell line had gone through okay so, so did you have a, like a, a theater outlet in undergrad or grad school or was that all sort of you know, locked inside for a long time. Oh, oh no. I, 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 I have to have, like you said, it's an uh-huh. outlet. I think most scientists have some outlet that they participate in to kind of get that other part of their brain active. 
Um, I had worked as an actor in high school. Um, I actually took one summer when I was in college and worked as an actor as a job um, and, and ended up minoring in theater uh, during my undergrad. Um, and, and to this day, and, and again, this gets into the weirdness that I am, I actually produce movies. I will freely admit they are bad horror <laughs> movies, but I produce movies for fun. Um, and as I brag to my wife, because your spouse is the one person you can brag to, sure. I'm actually a successful producer because we've actually made money off of our productions. Not a substantial amount of money, but we've made money off of our productions. Do you know how, how Bill Nye got his, got his start? I, I do not, know. He... He started in an improv comedy troupe in San Francisco. Ah, see, that's perfect. And at first he was just part of the improv comedy troupe. And then one day, so he had an engineering degree. He decided yeah. to start doing wacky science experiments at the improv group. And that got really popular. And then he started working at the Science Museum in yeah. San Francisco. And sort of the rest is history. But he originally he was with an improv troupe. I think that's why Bill Nye is so different from some other... like Carl, mm -hmm. He's like the opposite of Carl Sagan in some yeah. sense because... He's, you know, he comes from this improv yes. background, and it definitely shows in, in the in the show. So I I grew up watching Bill Nye, um, and it's it's hard for me to imagine grow, growing up with like Carl Sagan and nothing else. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, Carl Sagan was very much the academic lecturer. Yes, but you know, at that time, that's really what we had. I mean, that was kind of the model for the scientist and you know nobody else had done that before that. nobody no. had gone on to jimmy carson no exactly carson and, yeah uh... but but i love bill nye because bill nye just like you said he utilizes humor and i very much do that as well there's a program in england that i've actually been working to bring here called bright club so it's a, it has sort of two prongs in its mission. One is to entertain, and one is to train scientists to be better communicators. So about two weeks before the show, two professional stand-up comedians will take four or five academic scientists, it doesn't matter what their field is, and they'll train them to do a five to seven minutes stand-up comedy routine around whatever it is that they work on. So they'll great. hone this together for a couple weeks, and then they put on a show. So you'll have a, a professional comedian, a couple scientists, a professional comedian, all around science and stand-up. And it teaches scientists, one, how to use comedy, two, how to get up in front of people who aren't an academic crowd and actually talk about what it is that they do. And it lets them interact, because that's the cool part about theater. It doesn't matter what you're doing, if it's in a class or, or actually doing Shakespeare, that immediate reaction you get from your audience, whether they get it or not, it's phenomenal feedback. So how how did you go from from sort of the the theater world to the science outreach world? When did that transition? So happen? I boy, probably around when I was doing my postdoc. Um I've always been interested in movies and things like that and would occasionally do a presentation at like a science fiction convention or something like that. And at one point somebody asked me to do something around science. Um, and I've always been a big fan of really odd science studies, um, things like the Annals of Improbable Research. There's, there's some very interesting <laughs> science going on there. There's some great science going on I remember on reading that when I was in high school, and just yeah. kind of wild, wacky stuff. You know, it is. Uh, 
studies of cows that stand up compared to ones that lay on the ground. Oh, yes. And, yeah. And, uh, ones that will give more milk if you name them versus oh, ones that right. aren't named. Right. Yeah. Uh, one year, one year the award went to a, a, a research paper. Where, or it, was, it was a bra that doubled as a, as a gas mask. Yes. Yes. And so they had all these these male Harvard scientists that are on the selection committee have bras on their uh. over their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Because they have a ceremony for yeah. this. Yeah, and, and you can watch them. They have them recorded on YouTube, so you can go back and watch old ceremonies. Part of the ceremony is an opera they put together every year around some funny science topic. Um, but I was a fan, just like you were. But at that same time, I'd also been studying education and really how to teach. And I kept thinking, you know, I enjoy reading this stuff. But it seems like this is a missed opportunity to take these types of studies that are simplistic in the sense that you don't need to know any detailed background information to get it. You know, you don't have to know detailed information to talk about, does a cow with a name give more milk than a cow without a name? You know, unlike your research and mine in genetics, which requires very detailed background knowledge. Um, But because of that, you can get to the ideas behind looking at the study and thinking through it. And I thought, well, this is a great way to use comedy, to use science, to teach people how really to think about science. So that's when I started this series of workshops I do called Weird Science. So in these sessions, we'll take a couple of these papers and I'll lead people through a discussion around them in very similar ways that we have journal clubs where we'll take an article in our fields and kind of critically evaluate them. Here, I'll do it with an audience of lay people on a topic that's just bizarre, but they laugh through it and then they learn how to think through it. And as part of that, I always have people conduct a study as well, because I feel like science, when you do it, it's hands-on. So there's always a hands-on, involved component to it as well. Yeah, I think the... So Michelle and I went to your Columbus Science Pub uh, a couple, two or three months ago. I remember one of the ones you talked about was this study when they, they put uh, they put vinegar in beer and tried to see if people would would notice yes the the taste preferences so the idea was not so much they could actually taste it but if you told somebody i've modified your beer in a way that you think it's going to taste bad is that going to actually impact the way you think it tastes so they added vinegar but they supposedly added vinegar to a level that was below the taste threshold so they're telling people "Ooh, look we put vinegar in here you think it's going to taste bad Mm -hmm. but they shouldn't really be able to taste it But people love that because they can look at the data. And if you actually look at the data, people actually preferred the one, the beer that they put the vinegar in, which makes you question the scientific methods around that. And the audience, as you guys saw, got that. So they begin to understand, oh, well, maybe their methodology wasn't good. Maybe they didn't use enough sampling of the people who tested it. Maybe some of their statistics are a little off. And you can see in these sessions, people in the audience start talking about it, both with me and then amongst themselves. Right. And then you also had us do, um, it was an activity with selfies. Yes. So there was a paper published looking at... Um, If you look at great works of art, there tends to be a preference towards individuals um, turning to their left side. So this paper looked at individuals taking selfies if there was a similar preference. 
Um, and there was some questionable methodology in that paper as well. So I had attendees of the science pub where I gave the talk, take selfies themselves, send them to me, and then we'll look to see if our data can replicate what was published because that's the foundation of science. Can you replicate the results? And, and did you? What were the results? Are, I, I, have still... to admit, I haven't actually analyzed uh, okay. them yet. So for yet a calendar year, when I do talks, when I do weird science, I always cover different papers, but I'll do the same hands-on study. So that way I can accumulate data for a year. And I tend to give a number of these talks. So within a year, I'll get like two to three to 400 responses. And then I'll go and analyze the data as one large cumulative group. That way we have a large enough sample size to actually statistically say something. If you count, so I, I help run an outreach program at the Gateway Film Center where we do science activities connected with movies. So if you count those, if you count my weird science stuff, um, if you count some of the stuff I do at the Science Pub, I think last year, I don't know, I had like 30 or 40 talks that I gave. You're a busy guy. Um, yes. busy guy. <laughs> yes. So I think a question women often get is, how do you juggle it all? How do you, you know, be a mom and, you know, do work and all this? So I think it's a fair question to ask of men, too. You know, you're a husband, yep. you're a dad. You're working at Children's Hospital and you're doing all this outreach. Yep. How do you juggle all of the those? The very simple answer is I suck my family in. So nice. uh, for a number of years, I had an agent that would book me to do science outreach talks at libraries. And this would be around the country. So I would have a gig in Texas at a small library. So the family would all fly out with me. We'd turn, a turn into a vacation. Nice. So we'd go out like a day early, have some fun in the area, and then the kids and my wife would come and help out. So I always joke that we're like the science partridge family. Oh, my. <laughs> so do they actually enjoy getting sucked in for the they most part? They love getting sucked okay. in, yeah. In fact, it's gotten sure. so bad that my kids, if they can't come help out at a geek sneak at the Gateway Film Center, those typically are on Thursday nights. So during the school year, a lot of those they can't make. If they can't come and help out, they really get mad. Fair enough. Yeah. Are, nice. are they sort of curious about the science career or what? They definitely enjoy science. Now, are they really going to go into a career in science? I don't know. And and I try, my wife and I as well, we try to instill in them, you know, do whatever really makes you happy. My oldest is 12 and has really shown an affinity for animals. So I could see him really going into that as a career path. My youngest right now has shown an affinity for avoiding responsibility. <laughs> So I have no Mine clue, yeah. yeah, no clue what career he's going to go into. But they're both really smart. So it's more just defining what area is it that you want to go into. And I was reading something the other day that said, if you're a parent, you know, we always ask, what do you want to do when you grow up? And this article is really interesting because they said, frame it differently. Frame them, ask the kids, well, what problem do you see that you guys want to work on to make better? And I thought that was a really smart idea. And I can see that with my oldest because he really feeds into animals. He's been volunteering at a cat shelter. Um, and I could see him saying, oh, this is a problem. I want to go. I want to help the cats, you know, take care of them, sure. foster them. So I, I thought as a parent, uh -huh. that's a really cool way to phrase that. 